Uh, I just want to invite uh, my sis our sister Henny to come and uh, give us our scripture reading this morning. Henny. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught him, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Thanks, honey. So in June of 2010, I did something crazy. Probably something several people in this room have done something similar to at some point in your life. I got on an airplane and I flew from where I had grown up to the total opposite side of the world. I, as a small town American boy, was headed to this big city called Hong Kong. And I had never been to Hong Kong. I had just heard some stories from my friend who lived there the year before. I had seen a couple pictures online, but I was now committed to spend the next 14 months of my life in this city called Hong Kong. That 14 months has now turned into 12 plus years. But at the time, I had never been here, and I was on my way for 14 months to live in this city. And when I arrived, I was in for a shock. Because I realized that a lot of things that I grew up just sort of taking for granted as like the way things are, the way things are done, the way things are supposed to be done, didn't seem to apply in Hong Kong. Like growing up in the States, at least in the part of the States where I grew up, every mature, responsible adult has a car. That's how you get places. You own your car, you drive your car, you go to the store with your car. Then I got to Hong Kong, and I discovered very few people have cars. It's just not the way things are done here. It was weird. And where I grew up, you would go to the grocery store, and at the grocery store, you would buy groceries maybe for an entire week in one trip. Maybe you'd go a couple times a week, but you would go and you would just stock up on groceries and bring them back home. And I got to Hong Kong and I saw the size of my fridge and I said, that's not happening. And then I realized so many people here don't even cook at home. They just eat out every single meal. That was weird. And then I learned about different ways people interact with one another. You know, as an American, you're taught to be honest and direct with people. You, you tell them what you're thinking. If something difficult needs to be said, you try and say it in a kind way, but you just say it. And then I learned that's not how things are done in Hong Kong. You know, how do you do it in Hong Kong? Well, if I have something difficult to say to someone, I, I don't think they'll like it. Maybe I think they'll get offended. You can do one of two things. One, you sort of talk around the issue drop some hints and hope they pick it up and figure it out on their own. Or two, you just completely ignore it and just pretend like it doesn't exist and hope that things get better somehow. You just don't want to mess 
with people's faith. You don't want to make them lose faith. And, and so it's just weird coming from one place to another and realizing they live differently here. And those are three examples I could go on much longer about differences between the way things are done in Hong Kong versus the U.S. And why am I sharing this at the start of the sermon? Because there's this reality. Everyone who's moved from one country to another, maybe even one part of one country to another part of that same country has realized and experienced, it's called culture shock. It's that moment where you realize the way they do things here, the way they live here, is different from the way that I thought was just normal, different from the way people back home do it. And all of a sudden, things you've taken for granted throughout your life, that this is just the way it's supposed to be, about proper behavior and the way things are done, they're all thrown into question. And you have to think again, all the things that I learned growing up that were, I was told are good and right and the way things should be, are they actually the best way? Or is there a better way? Whether that's the way they do it in the new place that I'm living or whether it's some other way completely. Your beliefs about what's right and what's good, they're just all thrown into question. You have to rethink everything. And you may never have realized this, but when we become Christians, we're supposed to go through a similar experience of culture shock. Did you know that? As Christians, we're supposed to experience some level of culture shock when we become Christians, because Christianity, it's all about living in God's kingdom. When someone becomes a Christian, they switch their primary allegiance from the kingdom of this world, where we're living for right here, right now, to God's kingdom, where we're living for God and for eternity. And just as moving from Hong Kong or moving to Hong Kong from overseas forces us to rethink our values and our priorities and what's important and our actions, moving from the kingdom of this world to God's kingdom forces us to rethink our values and our priorities and our actions and what's important. And the church, the people of God, is supposed to be that new society where this new lifestyle is being lived out. It's supposed to be a safe place for us to come and explore and learn this new identity that we have in Jesus. And so on one level, the entire Bible is written to teach us about this new way of living and what that looks like. But on another level, there's one specific speech that Jesus gives in Matthew chapters five through seven. It's, it's probably best known as the Sermon on the Mount which takes a lot of the teaching on that lifestyle and just condenses it into one place. And he starts this sermon with something called the Beatitudes, where he lists out different groups of people that are blessed. And so in the coming several weeks, we're going to look at that intro to the sermon, the Beatitudes, and we're going to explore the way of living that God calls us to as his people and what type of people he says are blessed. And I realize we may be in for some culture shock as we do that, but hopefully that'll be good because it will help us learn to live more intentionally as followers of Jesus. And let me just say quickly, if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is for you too, because presumably you're listening because you have some curiosity about who is Jesus? What would my life look like if I actually trusted in and followed Jesus? And this hopefully can be part of your answer to that question. This is Jesus telling us, what he wants our lives to look like if we're following him. So whether you're a Christian or not, I encourage you to listen up, follow along, learn about what Jesus says about the type of life that he blesses. 
And today we're looking at the first beatitude, and we're going to see, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we'll talk about what are beatitudes, the blessing, why we resist it, how to be changed, and the reward. I know that's a lot, but we're going to do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for this chance to look at your word together. Thank you that you've given us your word, that you've spoken to us so that we can know you and trust you and follow you and live for you. And I pray that you would shape us into people who do that today as we, as we take this time to look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we get started in this sermon series, looking at the Beatitudes, I want to take a couple minutes and just look at what is a Beatitude? Because my guess is, unless you've heard that word in reference to this exact passage before, you've never heard it anywhere. Because that's not a big thing in our world. But in the ancient world, it was a thing. It started with the Greeks, and then the Jews adopted it too. It was a, a list of the type of people that are blessed. A Beatitude is a list of the type of people that are blessed. And so here's an example of a Jewish list of Beatitudes, not from the Bible, but it was Jewish and it came from around the time that Jesus lived. He said, I can think of nine whom I would call blessed and a tenth my tongue proclaims. A man who can rejoice in his children, a man who lives to see the downfall of his foes. Blessed is the man who lives with a sensible wife and the one who does not plow with an ox and donkey together. Blessed is the one who does not sin with the tongue, and the one who has not served an inferior. Blessed is the one who finds a friend, and the one who speaks to attentive listeners. How great is the one who finds wisdom, but none is superior to the one who fears the Lord. Fear of the Lord surpasses everything. To whom can we compare the one who has it? And just in case you're curious, the blessed are all in brackets here, because it's the same Greek word as in this passage, but the translators used a different English word. So just to make it easier for us to follow along, I stuck the words they used in this passage up on the screen. And obviously, we can tell from the end here, there's a little bit of, of religious Jewish flavor in here, because they've got such a strong emphasis on fear of the Lord as a source of blessing. But if you look through this list, I think most, if not all of the things listed here are things that we would look at and say, yes, that's part of having a good life. Like who here doesn't want to rejoice in their children? Is there anyone who's like, ah, I really wish my kids could just be bums who brought shame to the family? No, of course not. We all want to be able to rejoice in our children. Who doesn't want a friend? Who doesn't want to find a friend? Who doesn't want to have people listen when they talk? We all want these things. Even the one or two that might be culturally obscure to us, I think once we understand what they're saying, we want that. Like, blessed is the man who does not plow with an ox and a donkey together. What on earth are they talking about? Well, back in the day, if you were plowing your field to get it ready for planting your crops, you would hook up the plow to an an two animals. If you had oxen, that's great. They could plow together and they would do a great job plowing your field. If you had two donkeys, you could hook them up together. They'd do a great job plowing your field. But you never wanted to do one ox and one donkey because they were different size. They were different strength. They wouldn't pull evenly. They'd make a complete mess of your field and you'd be miserable trying to keep them back on a straight line all day long, and they'd still make a mess of it, and you'd just be upset, and it would be terrible. I mean, if you want to think about 
maybe what this could kind of be like in the modern world. You could think of like, blessed is the one who does not have to transfer files from a Mac to a PC. Because the Mac is great, can do lots of work, transfer files really fast. The PC can do lots of work and transfer files really fast. But if you try and send them across, there are going to be tons of files that just can't be read. And you're going to spend more time converting the files than you did transferring the files. And you're just going to want to rip your hair out because it's such a pain transferring across from one really powerful computer to another really powerful computer that just can't communicate. That's what's going on there. And so, again, nobody wants to do that. Everybody wants to live the type of blessed life that's explained right here in this ancient Jewish wisdom. So beatitude lists, they were common in the ancient world. They typically list all the traits in life that you want and say, if someone has them, they are blessed. But what does that word blessed mean? I mean, in our world, doesn't blessed feel like a, a super Christianese word? Like you hear it maybe in church. You see it maybe in like Christian Instagram posts, hashtag blessed, got my morning coffee. But I think that often makes it hard for us to connect blessed to the real world because it feels like such a religious word. And in, in the Bible times, it wasn't. It was an everyday word that people would use. And in the most basic usage, it meant happy. You would say that someone is blessed if, if they were wealthy and didn't need to worry about the stuff that poor people have to worry about. And on one level, that sort of applies to what Jesus is saying here. But if you look at this list that Jesus has right here, it, I think it means more than just happy. Several scholars have pointed out that happy is a very subjective term. It, it relates to how I'm feeling. But what Jesus is saying here, he's, he's making more of an objective observation about these people on this list, that, that regardless of whether you feel happy in that moment, you're still blessed. So according to Jesus' list, you'd still be blessed even if in that moment you feel sad. So it's, yes, happy is part of it, but there's more to it than that. And so maybe we could say blessed is people who have God's approval and acceptance. But I think there's even one more level of what it means to be blessed. And this comes from a theologian named Ian Duguid. He's an Old Testament scholar who studied like the Hebrew history of the words. And he argues that the word blessed here is best translated as this is the type of person that we are to envy. The blessed person is the person in Hebrew thought that you are to envy, which like makes sense, right? If you think about people we envy and the things about them that we envy, we typically label those things as, as blessing, right? So you know who I envy right now? People who can travel wherever they want quarantine-free and go outside without masks. Anyone else envy them? We'd say they're blessed, right? Maybe you envy someone who uploaded a dance video on TikTok and just became internationally famous overnight, and you're like, man, they are so blessed. If you look at the list of Beatitudes we saw above, like, don't we all envy that person who rejoices in their children, especially when ours are driving us crazy? The blessed person is the one we are to envy. But when we take that understanding of what blessed means, and we look at that in relation to Jesus' list of blessings, it makes it a little bit shocking, doesn't it? Like if you grew up in church and you've heard these blessings over and over throughout your life, and you 
understand blessed as God accepts or approves of you, it's probably not too shocking to you to be like, oh, God accepts and approves of the poor in spirit. God accepts and approves of those who mourn. God accepts and approves of the meek and so on. And again, that's true. He does. But it's not really shocking to us, I don't think, if we've been around church for any length of time. But how many of us have ever looked at someone we describe as poor in spirit and thought to ourselves, I really envy them. How many of us have ever seen someone mourning and and just been like, you know, I really wish I could be the one crying right now. How many of us have ever seen someone be mistreated for doing the right thing and thought, man, you know what I would really love right now? If I could be mistreated instead of them. No, we don't do that. That's weird, right? That's different than the way we're used to doing things. And when we understand that, we're in the right place to start listening to Jesus' Beatitudes because we're starting to be aware of the fact that this is a totally different culture than I grew up in, right? We're seeing that culture shock. The fact, the default way that we have lived our entire lives is quite different than the way of God's kingdom. And so with the rest of our time today, we're going to look at this first beatitude. And then in the coming weeks, we're going to look at the rest of them. And so first, we're going to look at the blessing. And the first beatitude says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now notice, Jesus is making an observation here, not a command. He's not saying, you must be poor in spirit. He's just saying, if you are poor in spirit, you're the type of person who is to be envied. And like I said, this this first category alone shows us we're in for some major culture shock. Because in our world, we tend to envy who? The wealthy, the successful, the ones who can do it all. You know, we might occasionally look at someone who has a little bit less than us, but just seems to have such a simpler lifestyle to go along with it. And we might be like, I envy them because it just seems so nice to have such a simple lifestyle. But the word for poor here is not someone who has a little bit less than us so that they can live simply. The word for poor literally means someone who crouches about wretchedly begging. It's the guy on the side of the street who's down like this, holding out his little cup saying, please, please, please give me something. We may envy people who have a little bit less than us so that they can live simply, but nobody in our world wants to be in a place where whether or not we have food to eat is dependent on the generosity of the people just walking past us on the street. That's weird, isn't it? And Jesus doesn't just say, blessed are the poor. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, what's the difference? Well, being poor in spirit has nothing to do with how much money we have in the bank. It's about our posture before God. The poor in spirit comes to God knowing there's nothing I can do to merit one drop of favor from him. They're spiritual beggars. The poor in spirit are humble, not proud. And it's often easier for people to get to this point of humility before God if they have no money. They're financially poor and they they recognize that. But there are plenty of financially poor people who are not poor in spirit and plenty of financially wealthy people who are poor in spirit. Poverty in spirit is not dependent on how much you have in the bank. It's coming to the point where you realize as Jesus said in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. You contribute nothing to God saving you. You contribute nothing 
to making God love you. Your only hope is to throw yourself on his grace as a beggar. And that's not just for salvation, but for every step of growth in the Christian life. You are able to contribute nothing. You're completely dependent on the generosity of God for anything good that happens to you. And why is that the type of person that God blesses and accepts? Because the gospel is the message of God's free grace, generously given to those who completely don't deserve it. If we hold on to this idea that God blesses us because of how good we are, we're showing that we just don't understand, that we're not in a place where we're ready to receive that free gift. Now, to correct a possible mis misinterpretation or misunderstanding, this doesn't mean the poor in spirit think they're worthless, right? The Bible is clear. God made us in his image. We have great worth. Jesus died for us to rescue us. We have incredible great worth. But the poor in spirit realize that great worth we have, it's a gift of God. It's not something we've earned or accomplished through what we have done. Being poor in spirit also doesn't mean that you're lazy, that you sit back and do nothing, that, that you have to be shy or that you have to let people walk all over you and, and never stand up for yourself. No, when you're poor in spirit, you recognize God works through means. So I'm willing to work hard, but entrust the results to God. The poor in spirit recognize that, that we're called to love others. Sometimes loving others means speaking up and calling people out. The difference might not be in what they're doing, but how they're doing it. The, the poor in spirit, when they work hard, they still work hard, but they realize my success ultimately at the end of the day has nothing to do with me and everything to do with God. So as I work hard, I'm going to work prayerfully because I need God to be involved if anything good is going to come out of this. They'll work hard, but they'll work and interact with others humbly because they know any success I have is a gift from God, so I don't need to be put up on a pedestal. They'll work hard, but they'll be thankful rather than entitled for the things that they have because they know they're beggars. Everything good they have is a gift. Have you ever met or been around someone like that? Someone who has this stability and, and balance to be humble but confident at the same time? Someone who's really like able to work really hard, but doesn't feel entitled, doesn't feel superior to others because of that. Someone who's able to be like lovingly gentle and patient with the people around them because they realize I'm no better than anyone else. How do you feel when you're around someone like that? Isn't it great? Like, don't they just make you feel better about being you? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Enviable are the poor in spirit. We look at them and we think they are great people. We enjoy being around them. And yet, we look at them, we think they're great people, we enjoy being around them. And something inside us is, I want no part of that for me. Doesn't it? <laughs> we look at them, we, we love what they have, we love being around them, and we don't want to be like that at all. Why? Why do we resist it? And the answer is pride. Pride is this attitude that, that says, I am the center of the universe. Everything in life should revolve around me. Therefore, life becomes a competition to prove how much better I am than everyone else. C.S. Lewis, he called pride spiritual cancer. And he said it's enmity, not only enmity between man and man, but enmity to God. 
Pride is the attitude that looks to God and refuses to be humble before him. I've said it before, but at the most fundamental level, when we talk about sin, sin is not first and foremost things we do. It's this attitude that looks to God and says, God, you don't belong on that throne. I could do a better job running my life than you could. So how about you get down off that throne, let me take my rightful place up there, and then things will be okay. That's pride, and that's most fundamentally what sin is. That's why the Bible has so much to say about against pride, because at the most fundamental level, pride is an attitude that says, I make a better God than God. Like we, we typically think of pride in relation to one another, right? Like thinking I'm better than this person or this group of people. I'm superior to them. But even that, you never have that attitude towards other people unless you have it towards God first. Because if you're looking down on others and you think you're better than them for any reason, whether it's I have more money in the bank, I'm harder working, I have better beliefs, I, whatever it is, if you're looking at them and saying, I'm better than them because of the things that I've done, you're ultimately saying, I know better than God does where human worth and value comes from. We never have an attitude of pride towards others unless we have an attitude of pride towards God first. Because when we have a right posture towards God, we realize like we all share the image of God together. We all have dignity and value and worth. I have no right to look down on anyone else. Even the good things I have have been given to me as a gift from God because I am a spiritual beggar and therefore I have no reason to see myself as better than anyone else. We only experience pride towards others because we have it towards God first, but we're all born with that attitude of pride towards God and others hardwired into us. From the day we're born, each of us wants to live in a world where we're in control, where our way goes. We want like, like we, we kind of don't want this, but we really do want to live in a world where success or failure just rests on our shoulders so that when we overcome, so that when we do better than everyone else, we can look around at everyone else and say, ha, I'm better. Better than you and you and you and you and you. I am better because of what I have done. Doesn't like some part of you, no matter how small, just want that for life to always go your way? Just to be able to look at everyone around you and say, ah, yes, I am better than you. It's okay to admit it. We all do it sometimes. It's born hardwired into us. And poverty of spirit feels a little bit like dying because it means letting go of that. It means fighting against every natural impulse inside of us and learning to rely completely on God instead. It feels unnatural. It may even feel undignified. And so we go through life looking at people who are poor in spirit and think they are great. I love being around them. I love having them as friends. I want no part of it for me. And when we do that, we actually rob ourselves of blessing. And I think we're, we're often oblivious to this, but I think maybe seeing it happen in a different context can help us just feel a little bit more how crazy that is. So Justine and I, we were watching a show recently, and in the show, there's this family that was very, very rich, and they lost everything and became super poor. But they got a little money, and they decided, all right, we are going to buy a car so that our family doesn't have to just, like, ask our neighbors for rides everywhere we need to go. And the husband and wife, they go to the used car lot, and they're like, we're going to try and negotiate a good deal for this used car, save as much money as we can, the owner of the car shop recognizes them. He knows their story. 
he feels bad for them and he tells them, hey, I'm going to give you a great deal on this car you want because we want to help you out. We know things have been tough for you guys. And how do you think that couple responds? Thank you so much. We have nothing. We need this help. That's so wonderful of you to offer. The husband says that and the wife says, uh, hold on. No, 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 we don't need charity. Why would you do that? And she starts trying to talk the price of this car back up so that they can spend money they don't have so that they look like they have money. You know, if they had bargained and gotten the owner down to this price that he was offering, she would have taken it because we won. We, we talked him down, we convinced him. But as soon as she hears his charity, she wants nothing to do with it. And so the family spends up, ends up spending about 50% more for this car than they needed to because the mom wasn't willing to accept the gift that was being offered to her. And they come back and the dad says something about it to the kids. And you know what her response is? You can't put a price on dignity. That's the voice of pride. You can't put a price on dignity. Therefore, we should spend money where we don't have it so we can hold on to our dignity. And when we see someone doing that financially, I think we all have the perspective to just be like, that's, that's ridiculous. Why would you be so wasteful? How could you do that when you don't even have the money in the first place? It's ridiculous. But how often do we do the same thing with God? We look at him, we're like, you know, I, I know you say this is all by grace, but I feel like I need to contribute something. We try to negotiate some type of spiritual bargain where we can contribute something to God saving us or loving us. But the problem is we don't have anything to contribute. Our pride blinds us to our need, just like that lady's pride blinded her to her family's financial need. It's only when we can let go of our pride, stop having to live for ourselves, stop insisting on our own way, come to God confessing that he is right about our spiritual state, that we're set free to actually receive that blessing. In order to be joyfully poor in spirit, we need humility. In order to find and experience the fullness of blessing that God created us for, we need to learn to let go of our pride and be poor in spirit. So how do we do that? Let's look at how to be changed. And the answer is by looking at the one who was the ultimate poor in spirit, by looking to Jesus. The Bible tells us actually that Jesus was God in human flesh. In 2 Corinthians 8, Verse nine, it tells us that he was rich. Did you know that? The Bible says Jesus was rich. It's talking specifically about finances here, so financially rich, but really he was rich in every way. He was rich, financial resources, anything he wanted, he could have had it. But also spiritually, emotionally, he had all the resources available. He was rich. If there was ever someone who lived on this planet who had the right and the resources to live rich in spirit and have it go well for them. It was Jesus. And yet, if you look at his life and the way that he lived, he lived out poverty of spirit more thoroughly than anyone else who's ever lived on this planet. Jesus isn't calling us to do anything here that he's not willing to do himself. You know, if anyone in the history of the planet ever had the right to go through life without praying, because, I mean, they, they're gods, so they know the right thing to do every time anyway, and they have the power to change all their circumstances anyway. It's Jesus, right? Like, he, of all people, could have said, I don't need to pray. But what do we find when we look at his life? 
He's constantly praying. He like disappears in the middle of the night. Everyone's like, where did he go? He's like, I was praying, guys. He prioritized prayer like few other people in history because he knew that it was absolutely essential. If anyone had authority to live life on their own terms and not worry about learning the Bible, it was Jesus. And yet when he's tempted in the wilderness by Satan, how does he respond? Every single time he quotes the Bible. He says at another point that he's come not to abolish the Old Testament, not to get rid of it, which he could have done because he's God, but he came to fulfill it. Everything in his life, he aimed to live in line and did live in line with God's word, completely under the authority of the Bible. As God, Jesus had the authority to make his own decisions and just go with what he wanted. And then check out what he says in John chapter 5, verse 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Jesus was so poor in spirit, so dependent on God, that if we met someone talking like that about their father today, we would say they were codependent. Like Jesus lived as the ultimate example of poverty in spirit. And why did he live that way if he of all people didn't have to? It's because he understands how life works. He knew experientially that life works best when it's lived in a relationship with God with this attitude of poverty in spirit. Jesus didn't want to live any other way because he knew this is the best way to live, that this is truly an enviable lifestyle. And if you're feeling a little bit worse about yourself now because you realize how far short you fall, don't. Because Jesus is not just our example, he's also our savior. When he stepped down from wealth to poverty, it wasn't just coming from heaven to earth. It involved him stepping down and dying on the cross for you and for me. He experienced the full depth of spiritual poverty in our place. All the weight of our pride and our self-reliance was thrown on him and he felt what it's like to face the silence of God so that you and I, in all of our sin and failure, don't have to. So that we can come to God in all our poverty, offering nothing, and find love and acceptance. Jesus, the ultimate poor in spirit, he paid the price so you and I can find the wealth of being accepted by God and trusting him. And when, when, when we trust in him this way, Jesus says there's a re reward for us, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We have a new citizenship given to us, a new homeland that's ours. Jesus, yes, he calls us to lay down everything if we're going to follow him. But he gives us back far more than he ever calls us to give up. Notice the verb tense. He doesn't say theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. He says theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Present tense, here and now. Jesus is saying this kingdom, this something greater than the world can ever offer us, something great that can't be taken away, it's yours already if you come to him with this poverty in spirit. No, it's not here in its fullness, but we get glimpses of it here and now. We get to see God work in our lives and work in our world as we live under his rule. We get to experience the peace and comfort of letting go of trying to prove ourselves and just having God's approval right here, right now. And one day, yes, we'll have it in fullness. We'll get to see God face to face. And we may wonder today whether it's really worth it, but on that day, we won't wonder anymore. We'll know. 
it's all been worth it and then some. So church, how are we doing? Some culture shock? It's a little bit different, huh? The ways of God's kingdom are totally different than this world's ways. They flip the world's ways entirely on their head. But this is the counterculture that Jesus calls us to be if we want to be the people who experience his blessing and who bring that blessing to the world around us. And I realize it's a difficult, slow process. So if you're looking at this today and you're like, I'm not where I need to be, be patient with yourself. Have grace with yourself. We're never going to get there perfectly in this lifetime. But by his power, we can grow a little bit each day, learning to let go of our pride and embrace this, this life of poverty in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy and come to God humbly as beggars, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. God, we confess that we are proud people, that we have our way, we want the world to work, and, and in that way, we are right in the middle of things. Everything revolves around us. We get to look at others with this air of superiority. And God, we realize that that is a way that, that leads to death. So God, we need you to come in and change our hearts, to change our desires, to take away that pride and to show us that the path to true joy in life, true blessing in life comes through poverty in spirit, through coming to you as beggars and receiving the abundant blessings that you give to us. Teach us to do that today and find rest in knowing you. In Jesus' name, amen.